0: Yep. I don't mind. I don't mind whatever. Okay, so um well I'll just for my own sake. Um Yeah. So this feels this feels the moment you decide. (laughs) Yeah Uh, I don't know what I'm doing. It's always edit. (laughs) So this feels terribly awkward, but uh alright, so the plan here is to host a podcast. Uh we're calling this the History of Christian No, wait, a history of Christian theology. Um and uh I tried to come up with more clever titles, but supposedly this is the best way uh, to get people to actually click on it. So we'll see. Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name is Chad Kim. With me this week as usual are Tom Velasco and Trevor Adams. This week we'll be discussing Minucius Felix's dialogue entitled Octavius. In this dialogue, Minucius Felix a Roman prefect of some kind, has a dialogue with two of his buddies, Caecilius and Octavius. The dialogue is modeled after Cicero's De Rerum Natura, On the Nature of Things, um, and also brings in elements from other Stoic and classical philosophy. Um, In order to set up this dialogue, it is important to know that Minucius Felix is the judge of a debate between Octavius the Christian and Caecilius the non-Christian. In the end, ultimately, Caecilius is convinced by the arguments of Octavius and Minucius Felix judges Octavius the winner. However, they are all presented as three friends who just want to have a cordial dialogue that discusses the nature of Christianity and Roman religion. It shares many similar features to the other apologetic dialogues that we have read to this point, but it is written with a style and eloquence unlike anything that we have seen probably to this point, which we discuss in, some, in a little detail at the beginning of the podcast. We also end with a discussion that takes into account many different political viewpoints from our current day and how the different Christians viewed issues like abortion and the death penalty. So stay tuned for that towards the end. Next week, we'll be back with Origin. Uh, we will look at his on-first principles, and our friend Ben will be back on the podcast to discuss that. Um, thank you for listening to A History of Christian Theology. Check us out on fa- at facebook.com slash Theology. We, I'll, I'll set the scene a little bit here. Just the, the what we're reading is a dialogue from this guy called Manutius Felix, um, and it's basically his two friends, Caecilius and Octavius, who are arguing over whether or not people should sort of believe in the Christian God. Um, and uh, Minucius Felix, the writer, is sort of the judge. Um, it's a really cool dialogue to read at the beginning. Um, I just wanted to read some of the things that he says about friendship um, because I thought those were pretty. I don't know. It's cool to read. Um, it's cool to read Christians to me who talk about friendship and stuff that I find important. Like just on the very first page, the fact is that he cherished such warm affection for me that both in our amusements and serious occupations, our wills were tuned to perfect concert, whether of likes or dislikes. You might have thought a single mind had been parted in two. Um, which, by is, the way,
1: by the way right there, that's a straight rip-off of um, is it Cicero or Aristotle? Well, it could be both. Cicero, I'm pretty sure I'm thinking Cicero, though, who says that a friendship is a single soul uh, in two bodies. So I think he's taking that from Cicero. I don't—I might that, be wrong I on that. I think it is Cicero. Yeah. No, that
2: uh, uh, sounds right.
1: Which would make sense. I mean, he's writing in Latin. He obviously the stuff I read said that uh, Felix is, they actually put Felix forward as kind of the first real, uh, gifted Latin writer in the Christian tradition. They, they, I don't know, but they made the argument that, that he is really following in the, in the Ciceronian tradition, which for our listeners, Cicero is Shakespeare to the Latin, uh, to the Latin people. He was considered the the pinnacle of prose writing. So, uh, the stuff I read said that Tertullian is a little more, I guess, barbarous in his use of Latin,
0: and that Felix is the first one to really kind of use that, that gifted prose. Well, the okay. difference between Tertullian and Felix, too, would also have to be the dialects that they're writing in. So Tertullian is oh, writing yeah. in North, North Africa, um, and Minucius Felix is from Rome. Um, and he he has this really charming introduction, which is also the same way um, that uh, Deo Ficci begins, I believe, Uh, from Cicero, Uh, but he, you know, these sort of longer, like setting the scenes for the dialogues. Um, You know, he talks about the shores of Ostia um, near Rome. And I mean, just as sort of a pleasure to read in theology, I enjoyed that because a lot of times theologians don't take the time uh, to really carefully set a scene and, and take time with their words. So I just at least thought from the introduction, he spends a couple chapters just, just, you know, a gentle ripple playing over the verge of the sands, level them into sort of promenade of the sea. Uh, you know, it's just, it, it's flowery language that sometimes, you know, it's nice to read. It was like,
2: it was very literary in the beginning and less just straightforward scholarly, which was cool. Yeah.
1: Which I actually, it was by far my favorite part of the book, because one, it gives us a glimpse into real people for kind of, The first time. I mean, since we've begun this journey, everything else is just so formulaic. It's so much like the philosophical writings that were out there. Everything is presented very much as an argument, like an essay. This is the first time where you get a sense of normal people living a normal life. And I would add that, of course, part of the background of this conversation is you have Felix and Octavius, these two Christian friends, and they're joined together with a third friend who is a non-Christian, right? Uh, And and so, because the conversation is taking place with, oh, what's the guy's name again? Caecilius. Caecilius. So Caecilius is a non-Christian, but what we have here is we actually see relationship between two Christians and a non-Christian in ancient Rome, and you start to get a sense of like, oh, yeah, this is real-life Christianity, kind of like what we go through. But then... Frankly, and I really like this work, but frankly, it just got right back into the same things we've read a thousand times over, kind of. I mean, the same arguments presented by Caecilius with basically the same responses given by Octavius. That's not to say there isn't good stuff in it. It's just, it's kind of been the same. It's essentially, you can tell that there is just this mode of argumentation that Christians use, and there's this common mode of argumentation that the non-Christians use against them. So it's very similar to stuff we've read already. Yeah, yeah.
2: it's similar. The uh, The objections to Christianity are definitely basically the same, but it was kind of refreshing having it in the mouth of Caecilius because when I was reading it, I was kind of, like, thinking of it like, this is, a you know, someone really living in their own culture. Like, I was trying to picture it like it, the story is trying to get you to picture it. Like, this guy's actually complaining about the stuff that he sees, and obviously it is the same stuff, and he's just ignorant. But there was like, I got this feeling, there was like this sense of, um, he was basically really arguing from the cultural perspective of the Roman, which I had never even honestly considered. I just was thinking of the Christians always, when normally I read about, like, you guys are charged with eating your children and blah, blah, blah. And I'd go, oh, that's just ridiculous. These Christians, they had it hard. But I never thought about it from their perspective. Not that they have... Not that their perspective is anything to pity, but it's just more like I can actually see myself being so wicked as to see a religion that's just not socially respectable and then being, like, against it just because my culture sways me along. Mm. Like, I think we often do think, like, oh, that's weird, and that's, yeah, like, we're – even as Christians, sometimes we're not used to, like, a version of Christianity in our culture, and then we kind of go, oh, that's – sort of weird like they worship in a weird way and so we get weirded out and i get this strong sense that he's just like look these gods have been around for a long time you guys are weird and Mm -hmm. like and so he just he's criticizing what he doesn't understand but Mm -hmm. he
1: is just like this is weird well actually i've got a point kind of off of that that i think is important the first on the one hand as trevor said he uses the same arguments that we've heard you know the the it's the same old accusation that Christians are cannibals that they're eating children. He actually says that that Christians have to sacrifice a baby and drink its blood before they can become yeah. uh, initiated into the church. These are the kinds of things people were saying about Christians all throughout this early portion of their history, and that's largely because Christian worship took place in secret. They didn't do it out in the open. So on the one hand, he has these totally illegitimate criticisms They're illegitimate because they're just wrong. He's just ignorant of what Christians actually believe. But then he, he actually, I thought, presented some really good criticisms of Christianity. One of those basically being um, primarily what you just brought up, the fact that he, he kind of admits, he says, look, I don't know if there's one God, if there's many gods or no gods. He kind of implies that he thinks there's probably no gods at all. Yeah, but he says, nonetheless, look, we're Romans, and as Romans, you've got to be a Roman. You've got to. There's this tradition and this heritage, and doing service to the gods is something that is honoring to the state and to the emperor and being a part of this thing. and And he basically says, you couldn't prove that they're wrong. That is, the Romans are wrong. You can't prove that your god is real, you Christians. So since we can't prove anything. Why don't we just do what the rest of our culture is doing? You're a part of the state. Be a part of the state. Be faithful to the state. I thought that was a pretty interesting kind of line of reasoning uh, that he offered. Um, And it kind of hits on what you were saying, that he just looked at the Christian stuff, and he says, this just doesn't fit. It's weird. It it does not go with what we're doing as a society
2: and a culture. And then he kind of criticizes their attitude, too. Like, he Mm -hmm. says, yeah, like, hey, we're actually pretty uncertain, I think. And then you guys seem super certain. No, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, He says that. And he's just like, who are you guys? And then he, you know, a bit of a, uh, you know, non-PC thing to do now, you know, makes comment on the class of people that are Christian too and goes, and least of all, should we expect slaves and women Mm -hmm. and people who can't read to know more than us, yet they're claiming they know more? It's like, that's insane. That's just crazy. So... I can, I, you know, it's not like I, I don't feel pity for him, but I do, I was at least able to somewhat understand what, like, what the motivation is for this oppression. It's just like, it's
1: weird. Come on. We've been doing this for a long time. Yeah. And he references the slave and women, obviously, because at least according to Kaikilius, the early, early Christians were lower class people. They were, they were women, they were slaves. They were the uneducated. That was one of his criticisms that the educated, the men they don't tend to fall for it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. One, just to read a little bit from Caecilius' um, remarks, in chapter 8, uh, he says, It is intolerable that any man should be so puffed up with pride and impious conceit of wisdom as to a strive to abolish or undermine religion so ancient, so useful, and so salutary. Um, and so uh, what I when I was reading this, I was thinking, this is the kind of argument that I often hear people give to um, Christians, where they're sort of like, How can you be so proud? How can you be so, um, you know, basically, in his words, impious or unfaithful to our traditions? Um, but basically, to say that you know who the true God is, there are a lot of customs, there are a lot of people who believe a lot of different things, and Rome's pretty great, right? Um, so how can you just walk along and tell us, no, 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 we're all, you're all wrong. Um, everything that you've been doing is wrong. That is so, um, pre- conceited. Um, uh, and, and, you know, this is the kind of thing that people will say to me oftentimes, like, you know, Christianity, uh, I mean, and most forms of it that I'm familiar claim to be the exclusively true religion, um, the only true religion. And that's an arrogant thing to say in our culture, and you kind of get this same view from Caecilius. Um, for his day, they called it academic skepticism related to Plato, but it's still just sort of a basic skeptical position. The skeptical seems the most reasonable. And the most humble,
1: right? I mean- And the most humble, yeah. Yeah, he references Socrates. Socrates is the point that that he is, well, he's known for lots of things, but- one of the key points that he emphasized in his lifetime was that he knows nothing. So he embraced his lack of knowledge and held that up as like a virtue to be sought after. He basically says, Look, we don't know things, there's no certainty. And so we philosophers, we start from a privileged position. That is, we start in a better position than everybody else because everybody else thinks they know, but we we are are wise because we know that we don't know. We know our limitations, so to speak. And that's what is, is is criticizing. He's saying, you Christians come and say, no, 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 we're confident. This is the one true God.
2: It's kind of funny, though, because it also reflects this tendency in our modern culture to put religion in a different box from everything else when it comes to objective fact or not. Yeah. Like we have, we think... Everything, you know, science, of course, deals with objective facts that don't depend on opinion. Yet religion's in this scenario where the truth values are wavy and weird. And it's kind of funny that it seems like, yeah, this was something that went all the way back to then. Like, Caecilius also is kind of like, look, religion is opinion, whereas there are facts. But religion's obviously like opinion. And it's sort of like, who are you to claim to know when it comes to religion? Because we don't know. And yeah, it's, it's very
0: strange. Um, And he does put forth one argument, which is interesting because it, it actually reappears. um, I did some work on Nigerian Christianity, um, but they, they give the same sort of argument, which is, you know, which God you should serve based on how well that God helps you. Um, And so in chapter 10, Um, He talks about the Jewish people and he calls them the miserable Jewish nationality, obviously anti-Semitic, but uh, did indeed worship one God, but even so openly in temples with altars, victims and ceremonies, yet one so strengthless and powerless that he and his dear tribe with him are in captivity to Rome. So basically this is the same argument that Livy gives in the introduction to his uh, history of Rome uh, that... Rome is the Roman gods, Mars, Venus, uh, Jupiter. They are the true gods because Rome wins. Um, because whenever there's a fight, whenever there's a battle, Rome wins, and they're the most powerful uh, country in the world. And so, how can you not say our gods are true? Um, we are the most powerful country around, the most powerful empire around. And he says, if the Jews really thought they had the 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 right god. They wouldn't be in captivity to Rome,
2: yeah. Which is why, to him, the Christians seem even crazier. It's like, look at all the crap that happens to you guys. Like, what? 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 Who's your God? Like, what? He's a monster, you know. Like, he—he's just blown away. He's just like,
1: yeah. Well, and this isn't. This is consistent with pretty much the reasoning of. I don't want to say everybody because you don't want to oversimplify or overgeneralize, but this was kind of a common mode or common way of thinking about the universe, a common cosmology in the ancient world and in the classical world. I mean, uh, when the Assyrians went to war against the Egyptians, it was the Assyrian gods going to war against the Egyptian gods. You see this in... All Well, not all, but in so much of ancient literature, classical literature, you see it in the Old Testament. Uh, you see when the Assyrians are besieging Jerusalem and the representative of the emperor comes out to address King Hezekiah. And he asks, the, he asks King Hezekiah's representatives, do you think Yahweh can save you? He hasn't saved any other Jewish city. Uh, the implication being we're winning because our gods are better. Because our gods are stronger, and it seems to me, chad, and you you'd be more familiar with this than I would given your devotion and the amount of time you spent reading Augustine. but it seems to me that that's kind of where augustine's going to try to bring up uh, try to he's going to try to address this issue
0: in the city of God, right exactly, yep. yeah. Yeah, and we'll get that in full bore. But yeah, you get – Octavius does give a little bit of a response, and actually it's sort of a similar response to what um, Augustine will give. But basically he says um, that the um, – let's see. So basically he says that uh, was there ever procedure more irreligious or more outrageous, more cynical, and it's a vowel of crime. This is uh, chapter 25. Octavius basically says – When you read Livy, when you read these ancient historians, what they tell you about the Romans, not that they're pious and that they serve their gods well, that their gods are the reason uh, that they're victorious. Rather, you see these irreligious, impious, awful people who, you know, steal the Sabine women and are a gathering of crooks. And, you know, I mean, basically it's just like, how can you look at Roman history and see anything but irreligion um, and, and infighting and, and evil. Yeah, they're not even faithful to the virtues
1: that they set up as virtues. They're right. not even, you know, and, and of course, we, I think, as Christians have a narrative for this. It's called the fall, right? Um, people historically have established a standard, a set of virtues for themselves and to which they hold other people and they themselves in no way live up to that, that, that uh, particular standard, right? Therefore, you can look at any group of people historically, whether it be Christians, Jews, Romans, Greeks, whatever, and you can say, oh, look, you have a nation or you have a, a huge group of people who themselves are not living up to the standards that they set. And therefore, it's really hard for them to, to make the argument that they're succeeding because they've done so well and they've earned God's favor, or that they're failing because they've not done so well and have incurred his wrath. Like the general fact of the matter is that societies and cultures on the whole have a whole lot of bad in them, regardless of who they are, regardless of what their religion is. And so you can't really, I think, just credit it. I mean, I think we have this narrative today too, where we say there's a narrative in evangelicalism which says something like this early America was so great. And because it was so great, we became the most powerful nation in the world. But now we've become ungreat, And because we're not great, because we're not moral enough or we're not religious enough or we're not Christian enough, we're now going to incur God's wrath. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I do believe that there's a place for God's grace and God's wrath in history. But I think that to look at it that way is overly simple. The truth is, is that Yeah, early in American history, there were a lot of virtues present, but there were a lot of vices present. And we have corrected a lot of those vices, right? I mean, early in American history, you want to talk about their greatness. Bottom line is the slave trade was huge. That's a terrible, terrible, terrible wrong that we have corrected. And what's more is racism continued rampant after the the freeing of the slaves. Now, racism is still rampant, but what you do see is a cultural shift where I think we've made steps forward in that in that front. So it's not as if the story of America is just, well, we were once moral, and now we're getting less moral. The reality is is that it's, well, the reality is it's complex. And that's true for the Romans. It's true for the Jews of antiquity. Um, it, it's true for the, the history of the Christian church. It's not just that, while well, there was this one time when the Christian church was really
0: moral, therefore it received blessing. Yeah, one. Just one other line. Uh, again, it sort of goes uh, with what Tom is saying uh, that evangelicals might say of American Christianity. But he uh, uh, Octavius says in twenty five, the Romans then have grown great not by religion but by unpunished sacrilege.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yep. Which I mean, you want to talk about unpunished sacrilege? I mean, just think of the 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 contradictions that exist in our own narrative as americans right yeah. think of thomas jefferson guy we think of as like the father of liberty owning a slave
2: yeah
1: right i mean this huge contradiction present right in that story and you can tell that you can bring in all the nuance you want and you can try to explain it away and you can try to but the bottom line is for
0: much of his life he owned slaves Just to get a sense of his, um, sort of wit, if you like, or sarcasm, Octavius says, um, making fun of the Roman religion, um, that uh there's well, there's all these others, Assyrians and Medes and Persians, but they had no cooped chickens to rule the destinies of state by their appetite or distaste for food. Um, and this is a reference to the fact that the Romans would often they would keep chickens around and they would look at their entrails, at their uh at their poo and other things to see the uh, whether or not God was in their favor. Um and and he goes on a little lower in 26. Paulus's chickens were in good feed, yet at Cannae, he and the greater part of the Republic were laid low. So the chickens had the right kind of poo, uh, but nevertheless, the Romans lost to Hannibal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And,
1: and I love that because he brings, again, nuance into the story of Roman history. Yeah, Rome had a lot of victories. Yes, Rome was the most powerful nation in the world, but Rome also had to endure 20 years of terror at the hands of Hannibal, losing at Lake Trasimene losing at Trebia, losing at Canai, losing these major battles and seeing an entire generation of Romans wiped away. I mean, in other words, their history was complex. Great victories, great failings. And he also, and I think you referenced it just a second ago, Chad, he references the other nations. The fact is, Rome wasn't Always the great power of the world. You had the Persians, you had the Greeks, you had the Babylonians, all of whom worshiped their own gods and had their own sets of virtues and vices. And I think by implication, I don't think he actually specifically says this, but the implication is, and Rome isn't going to last forever. It's going to fall too. Yeah.
2: There was another argument, a different one in chapter 11, brought forward by Caecilius that was about, which I which I found interesting, because it kind of got me thinking about ancient world cosmology, how they really thought the universe was eternal. And so mm-hmm. it went against, you know, all wisdom to him to think, you know, Christianity supposedly um, promises the resurrection of these bodies, which are, like, dying and decaying yeah. and, like, worthless, compared to the stars, which will never go away. And if you really... If you think about it it, with the wisdom of the age and you really try to put yourself in your place, it was another scenario where I really was able to, I guess, relate with Catechilius in the sense that I know I'm stuck in my intellectual sphere of what is, you know, acceptable and not acceptable intellectually. And I'd imagine him back then was thinking, no, you know, Aristotle said we've got these spheres and they're going forever and, and, you know, these things are eternal and crystalline up in the air. And he's thinking of the cosmology like, no, that stuff isn't going to go away. And the Christians promised this big conflagration or whatever you, however you pronounce that word, the burning up of everything, basically. And he's saying, like, everything's going to burn up and you're going to come back. And it just seems so backwards to yeah. him. And I don't actually remember. Um, do either of you remember whether Octavius gives a response to that, what his
0: response yeah. is? In 34, he says, furthermore, who is so stupid or senseless as to venture to maintain that man, originally formed by God, cannot be remade by him anew? That after death there is nothing, just as before birth there was nothing. Um, Basically, he believes, that and he goes on, the whole body, whether it crumbles into dust or is resolved into moisture, um, is withdrawn with us, but the elements remain in the keeping of God. Um, so this is uh 34. I don't, um, but what I find interesting about his response is he doesn't give what appears to be a more Eastern uh, influenced view, which is that uh, basically a resurrection of the soul only. Yeah. Uh, and and so he gives a very clear, and and this is one of the we're we've been talking a little bit. Um, about the differences between how Latin Christians tend to argue versus how Greek Christians tend to argue. And this is a very strongly Latin position, is that there is a physical resurrection. And I also think it keeps more in tune with what Scripture actually teaches, um, which is a resurrection of an actual body, not a, a resurrection only of a soul. Uh, but it's a very you know it's a very difficult thing to to figure out exactly you know what does happen to our bodies and how is it going to work but octavius is clear um he believes in a resurrection of the physical body um and this is something that a lot of christians i think get wrong today where they believe in a resurrection of the soul only
1: mm-hmm. yeah i don't i i don't know if in that he necessarily <laughs> specifically addresses the eternality of the stars or of the elements, in that sense, um, but definitely, as Chad just said, his response is really simple: God can do anything. Yep. Right. God can do anything, so of course He can resurrect a dead body. But Chad, I want to carry on uh, from where right where you left off. He says, "Nor as we believe, do we fear any loss from sepulture, which means by burning." He says, nor do we believe we fear any loss from burning, meaning that essentially he's saying we don't have a problem with cremation. Uh, he's, he says it's not a big deal. And by the way, that's actually addressing a specific argument that Caecilius brings up because Caecilius says you guys are idiots because you bury bodies. Like, that's nonsense. I mean – First of all, well, I don't need to go into why that's nonsense, but of course the Roman custom is cremation. That's the practice, which makes sense to him. He calls it like a stupid superstition that that these guys feel like they need to keep the bodies intact. Oh, and he does address, which everybody would have known then, just like we do now, that bodies decompose. And just because you bury them doesn't mean that they're not going to end up dust like if you burn them. Mm -hmm. And what I love here is what is what Octavia says. He goes, I'm not afraid of cremation. We can burn the bodies. Like, there's no problem with that. And I should add, guys, that there are – I've had people ask me this question many times. I've had a lot of people say, should we not get cremated? Because if we get cremated, then our bodies can't be resurrected. To which I always say, of course you can get cremated if you want. Because at the end of the day, whether you're buried or you're burned, your body's going to be dust. It's just going to return to the dust. What I love here is Octavius admits that. He recognized that. He goes, we don't fear the burning. Instead, he says, but we adopt the ancient and better custom of burying in the earth. Now, he doesn't fully explain this, but I can't help but think of a response that N.T. Wright gave in a question and answer time that I heard. For our listeners, N.T. Wright's a theologian we've referenced in the past, very respected um, guy I think most each one of us could highly recommend. Sure. But N.T. Wright... He says that Christians, even though that, even though cremation is not in and of itself a bad, he says the Christian response to death is burial. Cremation is an Eastern metaphor. He says, how what we do with our bodies is essentially a metaphor. In the East, the Eastern religions, the Eastern way of thinking is monistic. That is, it believes that everything is one. So to them, it makes sense. You burn bodies, you cremate them, and then you spread the ashes because, at the end of the day, this person isn't an individual thing. He is a he is just one with the rest of the universe. Inti mm. Wright says the Christian metaphor is burial, because we maintain the identity we lower it in the earth, and we lower it in the earth in expectation and in hope, in the hope that someday it, just as it was lowered in the earth, will rise from the earth in resurrection. Now, Inti Wright says it's just a metaphor, and I agree with him, and I think. That's what Octavius is getting at. This is just what we do to tell our story. At the end of the day, if a Christian gets cremated, that doesn't mean he's not going to be resurrected. Um, It's just that this is the Christian story. And I would like to add, I love where Octavius takes the argument. He then goes on, and I don't need to read on in it, but he goes on to address all of the metaphors for death and resurrection that exist in the world around us the winter followed by the spring. In winter, everything dies. In spring, everything comes up. The setting of the sun and the rising of the sun. Every single day, he says, there's a death and a resurrection, a death and a resurrection. He says all of this is teaching us what I think he would argue is the natural course of events. We die, and in Christ, we are resurrected. Yeah, in fact, I think,
2: I I can't remember uh, exactly who it was, but in some of the people we've read before, there was a there was the metaphor also of the the dead being buried like a seed being buried in the ground, yeah. knowing that it will grow back up mm-hmm. and come to life again.
0: One one line that I just wanted to read, I, I'm with you know I'm with Tom, and I'll you know we can ask Trevor too on this. I, I wasn't blown away by Octavius's response. Um, the dialogue will make it seem like um, Octavius wins. Manius Phaellus. Felix chooses Octavius's argument, and in fact, Caecilius just concedes. He just says, uh, "Caecilius just concedes." He says that that basically uh, that Octavius is right, um, and uh, and so you know it's such a brilliant argument. But though, I was trying to think of what I found to be Octavius's most compelling uh, argument, and this isn't even a full argument, but it does address um, sort of one thing that to me, you know, makes Christianity um, appealing. Um, And uh, in mine, it's 31. He says, um, as for the daily increase in our numbers, that is no proof of error, but evidence of merit. And this is referencing the Caecilius argument that Basically, there's so many stupid people um, that become Christians, and they just keep increasing and increasing and increasing, and he uses an argument against them. But Octavius says it's it's an evidence of merit. Why? For beauty of life encourages its follow- followers to persevere and strangers to join the ranks, um, which I, I particularly like the beauty of life. Now, he doesn't exactly – explain what he means by that. Uh, but he goes on to talk about family and God, partners in faith, joint heirs and hope. Um, and, you know, basically, it's he says it's ties of brotherhood. And so he says, we have a beautiful life together. Who wouldn't want to join in that? Um, which, you know, I'm sometimes I look at Christianity and I think we have a hideous life together. <laughs> um, and there's like awful things that happen. But at its very best, the true Christian community is so compelling, you just want it back. Um, And I I particularly think of a time that I lived in France. Um, I was a part of a Christian community there that was so compelling. The life together was so beautiful um, that I just couldn't imagine being a part of anything else. Um, And so I I just particularly liked that line about Christian community uh, being so beautiful together um, that it was so compelling.
1: Yeah, I I, I agree. I think it's – I think it's those little moments kind of almost flashes. I'd like to say flashes of brilliance, but they're not really brilliance in the sense that they're not rationale as much as it's little glimpses into the life of Christians um, in that day. And I think at the end of the day, what has, if Christianity has ever been made appealing to non-believers, it has to do with that life together notion or, and not just that, but, all of the facets of the Christian life, I think, um, uh, the joy that comes from, from knowing God, the joy, I think, inherent in the that comes with the hope of resurrection, the fellowship that is present, cross-boundaries, cross-cultures, um, the fact that I can go and have gone into, well, I'll, I'll give you, I'll tell you a story. I was going to Amsterdam. Uh, On a little bit of a mission trip, leading a group of uh, you know young, kind of or I should say late college, just post college uh, people to go and you know I I don't we didn't have one direct kind of goal so to speak, but it was supposed to be kind of an evangelistic outreach. And when we landed at the airport, as I got off the plane, I was walking uh, around, kind of looking because I was the leader of the team kind of looking for where to get tickets because we needed to get on a, on, a, on a train so that we could get to the depot where we would get off and go to our hostel. And there was this guy who noticed me walking around. He just came up to me, introduced himself, and he said, do you need help kind of figuring out how to navigate the train system? And I said, yeah. And he says, do you want me to show you how to buy tickets? And I said, yeah. So he takes me to this kiosk. And he asked me how many are in my group, and I told him, and, and he, he says, well, you just do this. And he's punching the number of, of people in my group into the kiosk. And I said, oh, don't do that. We, we're all going to buy individually. He goes, well, I'll just show you how to do it. So he, he does all the stuff on the kiosk, and then he hits purchase, pulls out his credit card, and buys all of our tickets. Uh. And I turned to him, and I said, oh, you didn't need to do that. He goes, it's my pleasure. And he says, you're missionaries, right? And I said, yeah, how did you know? And he goes, I can tell and then he takes my hand and he shakes it and he says i pray that god would use you to open the eyes of my people for my people are a hard hearted people but they're a good people and it's like here's this person from amsterdam a dutch man who i have never seen again and never will see and i felt this incredible strong sense of brotherly connection and love that is only rooted in this life together that we have that that is truly Catholic that is universal that goes beyond the boundaries of living in Boise Idaho and and so forth
2: no it is super cool and like when you read these texts and you do get those glimpses it's almost like I don't know it reminds me of just like learning a fact about your grandfather or seeing a photo of like an old relative you're like that's what that's where we came from like that's and I don't know it is it is cool. It's really cool.
0: Yeah.
1: In response to the the what you said there a moment ago, Chad, about how, you know, you and I, and I I, I don't know, I assume Trevor's in with us on this, but aren't super confident with the answers that Octavius gives. Uh, I, I would like to point out, it's not just that, that, uh, uh, psych, Cy- gives in. He actually converts to Christianity. He actually says, well, that's it. Get me baptized, boys. I'm ready to, I'm ready to move forward. Like. There's no way I could beat you guys. Well, the arguments that Octavius gives, many of them are fine because most of the criticisms are misunderstandings. So it's just correcting the misunderstandings. No, we do not have sex with our brothers and sisters. No, we do not slaughter babies when we are converted. The good arguments that he brings, Octavius doesn't do a good job of answering. Like, why are you so certain and why is it not more... Uh, virtuous to accept kind of a position of humility. He doesn't really answer that. Also, when, uh, you know, uh, uh, Cycelius brings up the problem of evil, which is the notorious difficult problem that we all as Christians have to wrestle with. And, you know, Octavius kind of answers it, but he basically just answers it by saying, look, we, you know, suffering pain helps us to grow, which is true. But the argument's a lot more complex than that. And just saying, hey, we all need to be disciplined sometime may not actually answer all of the real problems that come about because of that problem of evil. So where his arguments are strong, where Caecilius' arguments are strong, I don't know that Octavius did a very good job of answering them. The only thing I thought Octavius
2: did a good job of doing was he starts off right away kind of saying, look, I think all the philosophers really, though, agree that there's one guy. And so when he, when he first is just trying to lay on the table, look, monotheism is not insane. Uh, I mean, look at Plato. Look at Aristotle. I think when he's doing that, he's trying to get to this, this first cause. Not that this, is a, this isn't obviously original. Once again, this is something we've already read a, a lot. But he does that. And then, yeah. And then he just kind of goes and corrects the cultural absurdity. So in that sense, I didn't think it was bad but yeah the the epistemic question or basically the the question about knowledge the skepticism question which definitely was the
1: best yeah it does go kind of unheard i thought in yeah. his
2: response but
1: i i would like to just read really briefly what i summarized a moment ago when i said he basically says well it's just so that we can grow he does it's a little better than that i was not being entirely fair but he's not still not totally fair in answering the problem of evil. But there's this comment here, it's in chapter 36, where kind of talking about the fact that we as Christians, we're poor, we're suffering, we're experiencing, because that's actually how Caecilius presents the argument. Mm-hmm. When, when he brings up the problem of evil, he's not asking in general why is it that bad things happen. He's actually asking it more specifically. He's saying, why is it bad things happen to Christians? Like, why is it so many horrible bad things like all of the persecution that we've referenced, the, the, you know, the, the, the murdering, the torturing of the Christians. Why is that happening? Yeah. And to that um, Octavius says this, he says, even if we thought wealth useful to us, we should ask it of God. Meaning we could ask God if we wanted money and if we wanted these pleasures, the implication is we don't want them. We don't care about those things. He says, assuredly he might be able to indulge us in some measure, you know, but we would rather despise riches than possess them. We desire rather innocency. We rather entreat for patience. We prefer being good to being prodigal. And what we feel and suffer the human mischiefs of the body is not punishment. It is warfare. And I like that metaphor that he uses nonetheless, because he does cast this issue of pain, at least in the Christian's life, as an issue of warfare. The idea being, look, there are things in the world that are against us. They're free-willed beings, which he acknowledges earlier that people have free will, that be, that angels and demons, I'm sure he would imply, have free will as well. And we are in a war with these things. And obviously, warfare, which is not desirable, it is nonetheless sometimes needful. And we are in this war, and this war is what brings us the pain but this pain leads to these other things that we want more than pleasure. It leads to maturity. It leads to patience. It leads to, to to diligence and all of those things. I think that's a good answer to some degree. It's just not addressing the really difficult problems of the problem of evil. It, it. I think there there needs to be more to it than just that. But I think. I think he provides some helpful insight there.
2: No, it, it definitely is helpful, especially since that explanation is still present in modern philosophy, religion texts as an explanation of some evil. It doesn't explain all evil no. by any means, but the idea is, look, here's a morally sufficient reason for some evil. It helps build character. But I think even, yeah, more importantly, his point is more just, look, our hearts are in such a place that – we accept these things as they come. And it reminds me that the early Christians were like proud of sufferers, yeah. which we're not so much anymore. Yeah. But.
0: And as to the sort of historical accuracy of this account, I mean, it is certainly worth being skeptical that <laughs> Caecilius actually lived. Or, well, actually we have a good idea that Caecilius actually lived. Did it all happen exactly as Minutius Felix wrote it out? I mean, yeah, we can ask questions about whether or not it was exactly like that, uh, but. Right, of course, yeah.
1: I have one more thing just to address. It's one I've meant to address many times, and I actually tried to address it in an earlier podcast, but I asked Chad to to edit it out because it didn't really come out right. But I do think it's important for our listeners to know about these things in the history of the church. We've avoided them because we're – uh, I, I think we'd like not getting too caught up in political uh, entanglements. Nonetheless, um, when he's addressing this issue of sacrificing babies, which Christians were accused of doing, at least according to Caecilius, that that they have to that they had to slaughter babies and pour the blood out. Um, when he addresses that, he makes this comment in chapter uh, thirty. Uh, He says, no one can believe this except one who could dare to do it, meaning you could only believe somebody could do this if you were willing to do it yourself, meaning also we don't do it. That's stupid. But then he says, and I see that you at one time expose your begotten children to wild beasts and to birds, and at another, you crush them when strangled with a miserable kind of death. There are some women who, by drinking medical preparations, extinguish the source of the future man in their very bowels and thus commit a parricide before they bring forth. Um, and so he's addressing one, the practice of leaving infants out to be exposed, which was a common practice in the ancient world. Yeah. Right? Infanticide, parents who had an undesirable child, meaning they couldn't afford to take care of him, or maybe he had some ailment that they felt was uh, too. Uh, you know, I don't know, too, too much to deal with. They would leave them out to the elements to kill them or they'd even strangle them. And this other thing, abortion, was actually really common. And one thing that we, it's not talked about a lot in the church fathers, but this is probably the fourth or fifth time um, you guys might be able to give me a more accurate account in which abortion is specifically brought up and addressed. And one thing that it is resoundingly, uh, the, 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 fa- the fathers do is they resoundingly condemn abortion um, they look at it as parasite. That is the killing of a child by parents. And I I just found that interesting. I would add, and only because, um, I know the last time I brought this up, uh, I can't remember who it was, Chad, you might be able to refresh my memory on that. It was a guy who talked a lot more extensively about abortion, but he also brought up some other things, um, which would have gotten, which would have shown Christians and kind of a liberal side of things.
0: Do you remember which guy? we? Um, uh, Epistle to Diagonetus mentions it, uh, but I don't think that was it. Um, yeah, because this was a longer work, and it was...
1: Yeah. He, goes, he spends a couple of chapters on it. It's pretty extensive. But all this to say that what we've seen is... I that want to the say progress, actually. But, say that again? I
0: want to say Athenagoras. But.
1: Uh, it might be Athanagoras actually. I was thinking Athanagoras earlier. But their anti-abortion pretty much amongst the people we've read, but there's some other interesting sides too. So on that side of things, they line up in what moderns would consider a conservative camp, but, and even though uh, Felix doesn't address these issues, we've seen this elsewhere, they would line up kind of in a liberal side of camps when it comes to pacifism and to the death penalty. Uh, What I mean by that is most of the stuff we've read is fairly pacifistic. Christians are seemingly against fighting and certainly against killing, and they're against the death penalty. They basically say no person should ever be put to death for any reason. And so, again, just kind of pulling out the political spectrum, these seem to be the trends in the early church. Um, You find on some issues they lean conservative. On some issues they, they tend to lean liberal.
0: Yeah, to, I mean, at the very end of thirty, he says, "For us, it is not permissible either to see or to hear of human slaughter. We have such a shrinking from blood that at our meals we avoid the blood of the animals used for food." Now, there was some, you know, dispute about whether or not all Christians had, you know, what kind of animal blood at their meals. Nevertheless, the first part: it is not permissible to see or hear of human slaughter. Yeah, he's against any kind of killing. Yes, and that seems pretty consistent.
1: Yeah. Um, with the guys we've read and and when you say see also i mean obviously he he does address the gladiatorial games um in, any kind of yeah. spectator sport where you observe violence he says is out and also plays and anything that mimics it he says Remi- is right. reminds me of the tertullian
2: the shows as well as yeah that, yeah
0: of course thanks for listening we'll see you again next week where we'll be doing book one of origins on first principles have a good week